We're going to be looking in John chapter 4. John's Gospel chapter 4. And Julia is my helper today. I'll give you some advice. Never share a stage or a platform with a child or with a pet. Because the child or the pet will take 95% of the attention of the audience. You understand that? I'll tell you afterwards whether it's wise to share a platform or a stage with one's wife. It could end up with us having a domestic in public and that would not be very good. Thinking of husbands and wives, if I had a pound coin for every time I'd heard anybody ask Julia whether I was her father, I'd be a very wealthy man by now. If I ever heard somebody ask Julia whether I was her grandfather, I'd probably be on side with, uh, inside with a manslaughter charge. And also, it has been heard, beauty and the beast, they call us. Are they so unkind? I'm going to read this story in John, or Judy's going to read it to us initially, and we're going to see what we learn from it. It's Jesus encountering the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. We're asking ourselves, what do we learn from this story today? Now, I hope when Julia has read it all, we'll look at it section by section, I hope to cover most of the bases. But if you can think of things which you learn, which I don't, if there's time afterwards, you'll come up and share it and we'll all benefit. If there's not time afterwards, maybe you could talk to me one-to-one -one and I would benefit. For every time we read in the Word of God, the light of the Spirit will reveal to us fresh facets of the diamond of truth. And you'll see that happen today, I believe. Thank you, Julia. It's all yours. Uh-oh, the man's here. Gospel of John, chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water, Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now... He harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. 
Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Thank you. Judy's just going to read the first section. I don't know why you're off duty when you've hardly started. (laughs) We're watching the master at work. He said, I wish I could reach and meet people and bring them to Jesus. One good way to find out how to do it is to see the way Jesus encountered people and we're learning. Bit by bit, Judith can read the first little verse. Verse 4. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So my first question is, why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? You say because the Father showed him that was the way he was to travel. Most Jews went around the outside of Samaria rather than go through. So why did the Father want his son to go through Samaria on that journey? Because the Father had a divine appointment set up for him. Often find out for yourselves and for myself, we meet people when we travel. And looking back, sometimes that meeting was by divine appointment. In the terminal and that long wait at the airport, on holiday. Every day, potentially, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we might meet somebody, but God has arranged that meeting. And it wasn't just the Father wanted this woman to find out that the Messiah, the Son of God, was alive. And not just because he wanted the town folk who lived with that woman to make that discovery, but analyze it. This was a breakthrough. This was to show that the gospel was not just for the Jews, but for the whole Samaritan race included. Later, all the Gentiles as well. So it was for that reason he had to go through. And the second verse, which Jesus read before she was meant to, We notice this, that Jesus was tired. That helps us. We see his humanity. He has struggled in life in areas where we struggle. When we're weary and tired and exhausted, he knows exactly what that feels like. And often we battle with tiredness. On one occasion, he was in a boat which was threatening to sink. It was being thrown around like a cork in the wave. There was the noise of a howling wind and the clatter and the shouting of the disciples. And Jesus was doing what? 
sleeping. Why was he sleeping? Because he was tired. Okay? And what did he do when he was tired? He sat down and rested. There's a word for somebody today. God says you just need to take some rest. What are the first four letters of the word restoration? R-E-S-T, rest. And he shows us that's what he needs and that's what he did. Thank you, Julia. The next section. The Samaritan woman came to him. Beg your pardon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Thank you. This is a hard lesson to learn and I find it difficult. We must let people serve us. We must let people do things for us. We prefer it the other way round. We say, no, it's all right. We must let people give to us if they want to. If we refuse their service or their gift, they will be impoverished. Do you know those disciples had walked every step of the way with Jesus in the heat of the day? It was noontime. And did you know that they were tired? So did Jesus say, well, I'll play the martyr role, you rest boys, I'll go and get... No, he didn't. You say, well, what happens if they got different food to what he would choose? Or spent a different amount, so what? You say, well, I must do it because my way is right. No, your way is your way, not necessarily right. You say, if I want a job done, I have to do it... No, they'll never learn, unless you let them do things for them. Often, God will put us in contact with somebody and we know far more about the Bible than they do, but they know far more about the inner workings of your motor car than you do. And they will have the experience and the expertise and the equipment and they will, and it's good for them to help you. It builds a bond between you. Not you helping them the other way around. It's good for their self-image. I've used this illustration before, but if I'm going on holiday for two weeks in the summer, I mentioned to my neighbour, he said, well, I've got an extension need, shall I mow your lawn while you're, oh, no, it's all right, I'll do it before, and when I come back, it won't be. Wrong answer. There's a quadruple reason why we should say yes. One, when we come home, it's lovely, pristine, and don't need to do it for your first job. Secondly, he's feeling good about himself. Thirdly, you have a good opportunity to go around and have a conversation to thank him. And fourthly, he used his electricity. So that's four good reasons. We've got two people by the well. One is a son of God, the living God. The other is a woman. Which one had the water jar? Exactly. So Jesus allowed himself to be served by other people. And we must do that, even if we find it difficult. Thank you, Julia. The next verse. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. 
Our church is a number of churches they are under the umbrella called Ministries Without Borders. As churches, we look to Kerry Jones and his apostolic team for oversight. And God wants our ministry to be without borders. Nothing can stop the spread of God's word, and if God wants us somewhere, nothing can stop us going there. There are some people, and I think H. Hill is probably a good place to find them, where God, by very reason of their upbringing and their journey in life, they are used to more than one culture. And we say, I could never talk to him, he's a different race, different language, different social background, different education. That's nonsense. God wants us to be willing and able to talk to anybody, whatever the difference is. And Jesus broke two taboos on this occasion. One, he spoke to a woman, and two, he spoke to a Samaritan. But he was willing to do it, and God will train us to do it, whoever to communicate with them. Thank you, Julia. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus did what we are able to do. He turned the conversation into a spiritual channel. Do you understand that? We learn to do that. The person we're with says, isn't that a lovely rainbow? We say, yes, it's beautiful. God put it there. Would you like to know why God put it there? It was with a promise. So the next time after the flood it began to rain and the people thought, uh, 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 we're going to go again. They remembered the rainbow was God's promise. The time you need God's promises when the storm comes to assure them that all would be well. So he turned the conversation to give him an opportunity to talk about the Creator and the work, work of God. And Jesus took this opportunity to talk about a gift which he had for mankind. Not water to drink to satisfy our physical thirst, but the water which will satisfy forever our spiritual thirst, because he said, I'll cause to live in you a spring of water, the Holy Spirit, so that streams of living water endlessly will flow through you. That's what he offers, that particular gift. Obviously, it caught the lady's attention, as we'll see. Carry on, Judah. Verse 14, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I won't go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. 
When we meet somebody, we appraise them. We're taking in an impression. First of all, it's the physical appearance. We look at somebody and just looking at them tells us something about them. Then perhaps we can have an intuitive impression of them. This lady approached where Jesus was sitting and he saw this lady. What did he see? I'll tell you what he saw. He saw a lady probably in middle age, a young middle age, at least that old, a lady who had a beauty and probably a younger, she had more beauty than that. But he looked into her face and he saw what? Weariness and tiredness. This woman had had five marriages which all started with a great big high hope and each time that hope had either dwindled or died or been snuffed out in a moment of time. She'd been ditched and dumped maybe five times. And you could read it, the weariness and maybe even the bitterness on her face, in her eyes, her dull, dull eyes. And maybe on one of those occasions, or maybe two, she was the one who ditched the marriage and found the grass wasn't greener after all, so she maybe was carrying guilt. And then, not only can we discern just looking at somebody, particularly the eyes, because the eyes are the window of the soul, but God can also give us a word of knowledge. What's the word of knowledge, John? When God shows us something about somebody or something that we had no way of knowing ourselves. You're right, you have no husband. You've had five and you're living with someone without being married. Father showed him that. That broke open something. Talking to a gentleman, young man, good-looking, tall, successful, years ago, and I just had that thought, and I said, maybe Peter, I'm wrong, but is there a kind of well of loneliness in you? How do you know that? He said, it's true. I feel lonely in a crowd. I just feel isolated from people. But how did you know? Well, God can give you that thought, that picture, that revelation, and that breaks open the whole conversation. Then he started talking to me quite differently and he shared his needs and everything like that. So when we meet people, look at them and ask God to give us the discernment that not just what we see with our visual eyes, our physical eyes, but what God can show us because it can build a bridge into that person's life. And we see the way Jesus uses that in this occasion. Thank you, Julia. Verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Ever find it like that? You're talking to somebody about Jesus, and when they get challenged, they start talking about something else. That's what she was doing. And the man you're living with, you're not married. Uh, Jesus, it's hit with the, with the right place to worship God is... And that will happen, folks. So what do we have to do when they will prefer to sidetrack the conversation and get it off their own personal lives and their needs? Well, watch Jesus, see what he did. Thank you. Verse 21. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, 
A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus listens to the sidetracking question and answers it and then brings the subject back where he wanted it to be. And what he says there is not the place you worship, it's the heart with which you worship. The first 17 years of the life of this church, people said, where is your church, John? And I say, it's scattered around West Lancashire. No, don't be ridiculous. Where, 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 what place is your church? I say, we don't have a place. We're the people. The people are the church. If you want to know where we meet on a Sunday morning, it's in George V College. And we need to understand that. We've worshipped God at the end of East Bank Street, top of East. We've worshipped God by the clock tower in Omscope. Ian and Lynn Rogers, founders, top of East Bank Street. John and June Collier, founders in Ormskirk by the clock tower. Val Morrison, founders by the clock tower on a Saturday morning. Paul Ashcroft, and after Paul, then Mandy, and then Mary Jane, found us when we were worshipping in the street, at the top of East Bank Street, by the bandstand. Do you understand? Go out and worship God. You can just as well worship God outside. It's exhilarating. You do something about the climate of the town you're worshipping in. And people are drawn, because it's magnetic. So never mind the place, as our heart is right, we worship in spirit and truth. Jesus said that's what matters. Thank you, Julia. Verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. To me, that's incredible. I don't think even at that early stage of his ministry that disciples really grasped fully that he was the Messiah. So why does he reveal that to this Samaritan woman? Straight out. I am the Messiah you've heard about. Well, I'll tell you one reason. Sidetracking, but for purpose. We've got new neighbours where we live, out at Scaresbrick. We're in a semi-detached house. New neighbours on the other side. They've been there about four months. We enjoy them. And uh, I have not in four months talked to any of the family about Jesus. And I have not invited any member of the family to a church function. Because I know that God willing, those people are going to be with us for month after month after month and year after year. And we can build friendship and put bricks in place. And the time will come when we'll give them that invitation and we'll talk about what we want to. But if I'm on holiday with somebody in two weeks, I've only got two weeks and I'll never see them again. At least I'll try and give them a track with our address on when we leave. And Jesus would never see this woman again. And so when we have this one opportunity to talk to somebody, we try to bring it to its full purpose. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? 
And Jesus would never flinch from that. The high priest, a mockery of a trial, the early morning of the day he was to die, accusation after accusation, and Jesus just said nothing. The eloquence of silence, let's learn that. Like the lamb before the shears is done, Jesus opened not his mouth. But when they say, you say you are the Son of God, is it true? It is as you say it is. Unflinching, I am the Son of God. He will declare himself. Pilate says, are you a king? He says, I am the king of the Jews. So Jesus, and that's the bottom line, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Your Jehovah's Witness friend comes on the doorstep, I will always commend him for what he does, it's not easy to knock on doors. I say, there's really no point in us talking further, my friend, because I happen to believe in the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God, and you believe he was created by God. So that's fundamental, it's really not worth talking about little differences. Jesus declares himself as the Messiah. Thank you, Julia. She's doing very well, isn't she? Come on. Thank you. Verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Question. Why did she leave her water jar behind? She needed to carry water back into the town. Why did she not kill two birds with one stone? You know the answer. You can't run with a water jar, full or empty. And she wanted to run. And a water jar was a very precious, life-saving part of her life, but she just left it behind because she had an eagerness to tell people what she had discovered. How many people know this? The best evangelists in a church are usually the newest converts. Why? Because all their family and friends are non-Christians and they've got something bubbling up inside and they're just so keen to tell other people. Yeah? Irene, you're probably going to be the best evangelist in the place. And why did they believe her? She was discredited. Why was she at the well alone in the heat of the day? Because she was ostracized by the other women. They made their snide remarks about her lifestyle. So she came out in loneliness. to And yet this woman, when she came back, why did they believe her? Because she carried such a conviction in what she said. There was a light in her eye and the excitement. You need to come, you need to come. And they came. Okay, Julia. Verse 31. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The anointing of God comes upon us and it nourishes us and it energizes us and we're never more alive than when we're under the anointing of the Spirit of God. 
Jesus lost his tiredness, lost his hunger. We get fine visiting speakers coming to this church and we thank God for everyone. And when they come, we pray for them. We pray that they will be nourished and strengthened and encouraged in their faith. That when they leave, yes, by the time they get home, they'll be physically tired, but they have received as they have given. Because to do the will of God and to share the truth of God under the anointing of God will actually build us up, nourish us, and make us stronger. Okay? That's why Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Thank you, Jude. Verse 35. Do you not say, four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefit of their labor. We live with fields around us, and when the harvest time comes, they're beautifully yellow, golden fields. But when it's ripe for harvest, it becomes grey-white at the top. The fields are white, and outside of this building there are people white under harvest. What does that mean? They're ready for harvesting, and we can find those people. And surprise, surprise, some of them will be looking for an opportunity, as I believe Irene was, to find what she'd seen in others and heard about from others and is waiting for that opportunity. Do you know I've been several nights at Anfield Stadium and I've seen 3,000 people a night respond to Billy Graham's preaching and message, 1984. One, because there's a huge amount of prayer behind that ministry, but two, many, when they got on that coach or got in that car, they knew before they set out what they were going to do because they wanted to do it. And they didn't quite, this was their opportunity. I say, if there's a God, and I could prove there's a God, would you like to know him? Would you like to live in his strength and his help and his power? Would you like to be right with him so you know when you die you're ready to meet him? Would you like that? Who's going to say no to that? If I can just convince them that God is real. People want, very often, to take, and they don't quite know how to obtain it, what step to take. And when we're talking to people, we must expect some people would just so welcome. Would you like to ask this Jesus into your life right now? Yes. Don't forget those people may have been prayed for for years by their mothers and their grandmothers and their loved ones. Don't forget other people have done the hard work and the sewing. I remember with Maggie, you may, Maggie, I think it was Preston you wrote, you took me to see a lady and we stopped in the car and prayed before we went in and I said, Maggie, correct me if I'm wrong. This lady we're going to see was born into a Christian home so she would have been prayed for since her mother knew she had been conceived. And Maggie said, yes, I went in with faith. Do you understand? Because some of the people have prayed, 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 and witness, witness, and we can just be the one who can just bring them across the line. 
is have the encouragement of Irene's example and let's live it and expect to meet people who are ready to pray the prayer. Give them the opportunity. Nothing lost. Thank you, Julia. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Just tell the person you're talking to your experience. It's called your testimony. They can argue about doctrine, but they can't deny what you're saying is true for yourself. And it can be so powerful. It puts a seed, a question mark in their mind, and that can drop and become a seeking in their heart. They want for themselves because they were on the outside of what you're describing. And the moment they seek and reach, they'll find him. And every time we share our testimony, it strengthens our own faith. What we speak out, we speak in. We've got to confess with our lips. And then we get more and more assurance. I'm not at all surprised when Jesus went across the lake and delivered that man from a legion of demons... That doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that the enemy tried to sink the boat on the way because he always knows there's blessing round the corner and always buffeting and battling before blessing so we can be perversely encouraged. I wasn't surprised about that. I was a little bit surprised when they came, those people who had been terrified of this man and saw him sitting clothed and in his right mind, they begged Jesus to get out of the way and go. They saw the living miracle in front of them. Okay, they lost a herd of pigs and maybe they could just think of material things. But they said, please leave us. And do you know what he did? He left. But these people said, please stay with us. And he stayed. He adjusted his plans. He had the okay from Father, I will stay two days. And then many who'd heard from the woman found the truth for themselves. But one thing in the story about the demonic, which really surprised me, and still does, is this man, who was just like an unbridled savage, and now was totally delivered, said, Jesus, please let me come with you where you're going. And Jesus said, no. And when you just encountered the living God, his faith was so slender, I would have thought. Jesus didn't even say to one of his followers, you stay behind with him for a little while and, and disciple him and see he's okay. No, he didn't. What did Jesus say? He said, you're not coming with me. I'm giving you a task to do. Go around the ten cities around and every opportunity tell people what this Jesus has done for you. And every time he told the story, his faith was upbuilt and strengthened. Take every opportunity, folks, like this Samaritan woman. It could just be the ripple 
that spreads and spreads and spreads. Most of us have found Jesus because we've met people and we've on the outside of what they're experienced. I need to bring it to an end unless somebody would like, you've got something which is just absolutely itching and burning to share with us, don't dig for it. Otherwise we're going to end and you can tell me afterwards. But thank you, Julia, and I'm just going to ask the musicians to come up and just bring this to a conclusion. But be, be quiet while they're coming up. Don't let the birds of the air snatch away the seed. What has God taught us today from that story?